and welcome to the Narrow Road Podcast, a place to share the journey of walking with God on the narrow road that leads to life. I hope that you find rest and encouragement here, but above all, the awareness that you're not alone on the way. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Narrow Road Podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Bowyer, and it's my pleasure to be back with you for another episode. Today, we are going to read about Paul, lovely, powerful, bold, brave Apostle Paul confronting the Apostle Peter. This should be an interesting little telling of quite the face-off. I mean, these men were two giants in the faith. They were our forefathers in the Christian faith, and they have a little scuffle during this sort of season of confrontation that Paul is finding himself in with other leaders of the faith. Um, As we've read in the first one and a half chapters so far of the book of Galatians, which is our point of study right now, we've seen that Paul has decided that he needed to confront certain members of the church leadership at large in Jerusalem regarding some false teaching that is entering in. He sees it and he's jealous over the pure gospel that has been preached. He's jealous to maintain it, to preserve it, um, and to not let weird doctrines sort of come in and mess it up. It's pretty much that simple. And so he's made his pilgrimage on down to Jerusalem for the first time in 15 years, I think it was, that he, since he had been there last, specifically to meet with Peter, James, and John. And during this time, he is also confronting other leaders that remain nameless um, that he supposes is bringing in this doctrine of circumcision. People are beginning to say that for anyone who wasn't born a Jew who comes into the Christian faith now, they need to be circumcised and sort of come into the fold of the Jews. And his argument is, no, that's absolutely incorrect. He believes that that was not something that Jesus taught, and he feels like that is taking people back into the law, the same law that Jesus freed us from. What they're supposing is going to draw people back into law and religion. (coughs) Excuse me and burden. And he's not about that business. So he's coming down with the message of, that's not okay, we're not doing this. And to sort of get the blessing of these apostles of the faith. These are the men that have walked directly with Jesus. He wants their blessing. He wants their support. He wants their kinship. But he also wants to set the record straight of, hey, this business of the law that's beginning to sort of weasel its way into the freedom that Jesus has given us, I'm not going to accept and I'm not going to take it with me into my ministry to the Gentiles. Um, And so far, as we've read, he's been very successful in this effort. Peter, James, and John very much welcomed him, supported him, extended to him the right hand of fellowship, and blessed the ministry that he is doing. But now as he's sharing in his letter, he's going to begin to talk about this sort of confrontation he had with Peter relative to some 
some ways Peter was changing and behaving differently depending on who he was around. And Paul didn't like that. He really, he's a stickler for integrity. He's a stickler for be who you say that you are 100% of the time. Don't let anybody else um, persuade you into masking who you are or adjusting your beliefs um, just based on someone's power, authority, prestige. And so we're going to see what he, he and Peter get into here as we continue in our study of the book of Galatians, the last half of chapter 2 in particular. So let's go ahead and uh, dive in. All right, so I am, of course, reading out of the Amplified Bible, just so we ever get every little drop of extra context we possibly can as we study this together. We're starting at uh, verse 11 in Galatians chapter 2, and let's go. Chapter 2, verse 11. Now when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him face to face about his conduct there, because he stood condemned by his own actions. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat his meals with the Gentiles. But when the men from Jerusalem arrived, he began to withdraw and separate himself from the Gentile believers because he was afraid of those from the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, ignoring their knowledge that Jewish and Gentile Christians were united under the new covenant into one faith. With that result, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I told Peter in front of everyone, If you, being a Jew, live as you have been living, like a Gentile, and not like a Jew, how is it that you are now virtually forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews if they want to eat with you? I went on to say that we are Jews by birth and not sinners from among the Gentiles, yet we know that a man is not justified and placed in right standing with God by works of the law, but only through faith in God's beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And even we, as Jews, have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. By observing the law, no one will ever be justified. But if while we seek to be justified in Christ by faith, we ourselves are found to be sinners, does that make Christ an advocate or promoter of our sin? Certainly not. For if I or anyone else should rebuild through word or by practice what I once tore down, the belief that observing the law is essential for salvation, then I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law and its demands on me, because salvation is provided through the death and resurrection of Christ, so that I might from now on live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith, by adhering to, relying on, and completely trusting in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not ignore or nor nullify the gracious gift of the grace of God, which is his amazing and unmerited favor. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. His suffering and death would have had no purpose whatsoever.
man, what a speech that is. <laughs> For Paul to say that he essentially said this to Peter's face in front of everyone <laughs> is pretty profound. But let's go back. Let's take a look here before we get into the commentary's take on all of this. What is his ultimate issue? He says here that what Peter was doing that was that historically... When Gentiles were hanging around him, Gentile Christians, he would eat with them, he would hang out with them, he would act exactly the same way with him, with them, as Paul would. Just as you should, because there was no difference between a Gentile Christian and a Jewish Christian. It didn't matter. We were all under the faith of Jesus. We were all in the same grace. It says, but when the men who were sent from James, when they came from Jerusalem... When they arrived, Peter would begin to withdraw and separate himself from the Gentile believers because he was afraid of those from the circumcision. So that gives a little bit of a context there. Potentially, these men that would be sent from James, which would mean they were coming from Jerusalem, could be the very ones that are bringing in this false doctrine of everyone needs to be circumcised in order to be real Christians. And Peter is kind of stuck in this place of, you know, well, if these Gentiles aren't circumcised, then maybe they're not real Christians. And if they're not real Christians yet, in the eyes of these men from Jerusalem, I probably shouldn't be hanging out with them. Because what would the Jews think of any Gentile? They would think of them as gross, disgusting, second class. You don't spend time with them. And so until they've done what they needed to do doctrinally in the eyes of these other Jewish men to get circumcised and whatnot, then Peter shouldn't be associating with them. And so Peter is stuck in this position of, well, whenever James sends these men down, I, uh, I don't really know what to do, so I'm going to hide. I'm going to leave these Gentile believers and I'm going to go act a different way. Paul was witness to this. Paul knew this was going on and he's like, hang on, Peter. <laughs> Um, creator of the Christian church by authority under Jesus. What is this you're doing? And he says, the rest of the Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, ignoring their knowledge that Jewish and Gentile Christians were united under the new covenant into one faith. He said, so much so that even Barnabas, his loyal best friend and confidant, uh, got caught up, caught up in the hypocrisy, and perhaps even started acting the same way, withdrawing himself from the Gentiles, which is the group he would have been ministering to right next to Paul this whole time. He says, "When I saw that they were not being straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I told Peter in front of everyone, if you, being a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how is it that you are now virtually forcing the Gentiles to live like Jews if they want to eat with you?" So he's saying, dude, no way. You love the freedom that you have when you're ministering to the Gentiles. And yet when certain people show up, you're like, oh, I can't spend time with you guys unless you (laughs) do this thing to your body to make yourselves quote unquote holy in the eyes of these other men. He says, come on, we are Jews by birth, yet we know that a man isn't justified by the works of the law, but only through faith in God, which is what these Gentiles would have would have had. 
He's, he's like, we know this. We know that the law adds nothing to us. So number one, why are we bringing it in? And number two, why are we sort of rejecting people who aren't going to to live by a law that they don't have to live by? You know, it's very simple. And you can understand, again, this goes back to what we said yesterday, you can understand why Paul is such a freedom fighter in this cause because he's saying, you know, if I give an inch here, if we give an inch to the law, it'll take a mile. If I give any ground whatsoever to this, it will take us over. Before we know it, we will have every ounce of that law back in this faith governing our lives. And Jesus would have died for nothing. And that's what he ends this whole paragraph by saying, if we could be justified by the law, if we could be made pure and sinless by the law, then there was no reason for Jesus to have come. But he came because we have learned over hundreds, if not thousands of years, that the law doesn't free man, it doesn't heal man, it doesn't help man. Religion never has and religion never will. So we can't bring an inch of religion into this situation. <laughs> I love that Paul fought this. And it's sad to know that Peter would would kind of play the hypocrite here. And perhaps so was James. And perhaps so was so many other people. Because they were getting caught up in these religious elites who had come into the Christian faith. And they probably had a lot of fame, maybe a lot of wealth, a lot of pomp and circumstance. They came in and they started bringing in this extra stuff and even James and perhaps even John and perhaps certainly as we can see Peter got real caught up in not knowing whether they should yield into it or not and it got messy. That's what you can see. It got messy where Peter would hang out with the Gentiles and then as soon as these Jewish Christians showed up he'd be like oh uh, can't be seen with them. So let's take a look now into the commentary and just see if we can extract any more um, context from this other than what's very obvious in this reading. Okay, so it first starts out and says, now, when Peter had come to Antioch, right, Paul's talking about this. So Peter approved of Paul's gospel and ministry when Paul came to Jerusalem. And God used Peter himself to welcome Gentiles into Christianity without the precondition of becoming Jews, as we can read for ourselves in Acts chapter 11. But though Peter was previously in agreement with welcoming Gentiles into the church without bringing them under the law of Moses, when he came to Antioch, which was Paul's home church, it was another story. He refused to associate with Gentile Christians once certain Jewish believers from Jerusalem came. These men were Christians of Jewish background. Paul called them certain men from James and those who were of the circumcision. Knowing their background, Peter knew they would be offended at his fellowship with Gentiles who had not come under the law of Moses. In their eyes, these uncircumcised Gentiles were not really Christians at all. Therefore, to please them and to avoid a conflict, Peter treated these Gentile Christians as if they were not Christians at all. That's so weak. Like, straight up. <laughs> like, that's so weak. 
Peter had known that God did not require Gentiles to come under the law of Moses for salvation. He learned this from the vision that God gave him in Acts chapter 10. He learned this from the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the Gentiles who believed apart from being circumcised in Acts chapter 10 as well. And he learned this by the agreement of the other leaders of the church in Acts chapter 11. But now Peter turned back on all that he had known about the place of the Gentiles in the church, and he treated uncircumcised Gentiles as if they were not saved at all. Uh, He seems to have taken this action shamefacedly. As Bishop Lightfoot says, the words describe forcibly the cautious withdrawal of a timid person who shrinks from observation. It is perhaps curious that nobody seems to have recalled that Jesus ate with publicans and sinners, which can scarcely mean that he conformed to strict Jewish practice. Sadly, others would follow Peter's lead. The sins of teachers are the, are the teachers of sins. Ooh, oh, wow, wow, that's a good one. Paul goes on to say he withstood Peter to his face because he was to be blamed. This shows how serious this matter was to Paul. He had a public confrontation with Peter over the issue. (laughs) This was also serious because it involved the issue of eating together. Before the certain men came from James, Peter would eat with the Gentiles. But once they came, Peter withdrew and separated himself. This separation was probably at the church potluck dinner, which they called the agape banquet or the love feast. They would also remember the Lord's death at this dinner and take communion together. Therefore, it is possible that Peter turned these Gentile Christians away from the communion table. It may be that the observance of Holy Communion was involved in this, for it seems that often in the early church it was celebrated at a meal shared by all the believers. If this was the case at Antioch, there would have been a division of believers at the table of the Lord. Paul, not hearing this from the report of others, but being an eyewitness to it, both did not defer the reproof, lest the scandal should grow. Nor did he reprove him privately, because the offense was public, and such a bandage would not have fitted the sore. (laughs) He said that Peter feared those who were of the circumcision. This explains why Peter did this. Even when he knew that God welcomed Gentiles into the church without placing them under the law of Moses, out of fear, Peter acted against what he knew was right. Peter perhaps felt that if the members of the embassy went back and told the Jerusalem church that he was eating with Gentiles, it would compromise his position with the leading church. It's easy to criticize Peter here, but every person knows what it means to do something that you know is wrong. Everyone knows what it feels like to go against what you know very well is right. Everyone knows what it feels like when social pressure pushes you towards compromise in some way. Their withdrawal from table fellowship with Gentile believers was not prompted by any theological principle, but by the craven fear of a small pressure group. He still believed the gospel, but he failed to practice it. This was the kind of behavior that dominated Peter's life before he was transformed by the power of God. 
This was like Peter telling Jesus not to go to the cross, or Peter taking his eyes off Jesus and sinking when walking on the water, or Peter cutting off the ear of the servant of the high priest when soldiers came to arrest Jesus. We see that the flesh was still present in Peter. Salvation and the filling of the Holy Spirit did not make Peter perfect. The old Peter was still there, just seen less often. We might be surprised that Peter compromised even though he knew better, but we're only surprised if we don't believe what God says about the weakness and corruption of our flesh. Paul himself knew this struggle as he described it in Romans chapter 7 when he said, For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I cannot find. No man standing is so secure that he may not fall. If Peter fell, I may fall. If he rose again, I may rise again. We have the same gifts that they had, the same Christ, the same baptism, and the same gospel, but also the same forgiveness of sins. We don't know what it was about these certain men from James that made Peter afraid. Perhaps they were men of strong personality. Perhaps they were men of great prestige and influence. Perhaps they made threats of one kind or another. Whatever it was, the desire to cater to these legalistic Jewish Christians was so strong that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. When these men from James came, even Barnabas treated the Gentile Christians as if they were not Christians at all. This was amazing. Barnabas was Paul's trusted friend and associate. Barnabas stood beside Paul when he first met the apostles in Acts chapter 9. Barnabas sought out Paul and brought him to Antioch to help with the ministry there. Acts chapter 11 says of Barnabas that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and full of faith. Yet Barnabas also failed at this critical test. The defection of Barnabas was of a far more serious nature with regard to Gentile freedom than the vacillation of Peter, because Barnabas was the foremost champion of Gentile liberty next to Paul, and he had become a turncoat. It is not impossible that this incident, by producing a temporary feeling of distrust, may have prepared the way for the dissension between Paul and Barnabas, which shortly afterward led to their separation. It's really sad. It's a big falling out. To us reading this, you know, it it can seem like a small thing, like arguing over circumcision, but it was no small thing back then. This was a massive, massive theological division um, that was destroying relationships. It was kind of the first church split of which we have now seen thousands upon thousands, you know, and it's real sad, but at the end of the day, one was right here when it came to bringing the law into faith. It made no sense. It made no sense to bring the law in, and it made no sense to pander to those who believed that the law was still an important part of how they were going to make it to the heaven. You know, Jesus came to set us free. He fulfilled the law, and then he gave us the new covenant, and with it, the new laws, so to speak. And so Paul was right in what he was doing, and it had to happen. And really, it has continued to be one of the greatest fights in the church, whether we realize it or not, because while we may not be arguing over whether or not we can eat shellfish and things like this, we argue a lot about 
about rules, law, religion within the church to this day. Varying degrees of freedom are where you find so many church splits taking place. Some believe in freedom and some often are found to want certain levels of restriction. And I mean, that can, that's such a broad brush way to say it, but a lot, if you really just sort of drill down on so many church splits, that's really where it comes down to is different interpretations of how free we are and how we live that freedom out inside of Christ. So this church split, this first church split that we're seeing in a way, and it really wasn't a split, except I say split by the fact that eventually Paul and Barnabas would split. They would go their own ways and how sad that was. Um, but you just see how influential and how this has been going on for such a long time. Because Jesus died to give us this freedom that humanity just can't believe is real. Even Christians, they just can't believe it is what it is. Paul continues by saying that the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with Peter and with Barnabas. It says, this shows that the matter was bigger than just Peter and Barnabas. Peter first made the compromise of acting as if Gentile Christians were not Christians at all. And then Barnabas followed him. And then the rest of the Jews at the church in Antioch followed Peter and Barnabas. This shows what a heavy responsibility it is to be a leader. When we go astray, others will often follow. Satan knew that if he could make Peter take the wrong path, then many others would follow him. The word hypocrite in the original language of the New Testament means one who puts on a mask, referring to an actor. In this case, Peter, Barnabas, and the rest of the Jewish Christians in Antioch knew that these Gentile believers were really Christians, yet because of the pressure from the certain men from James, they acted like they were not Christians at all. And... Just because I'm a fan of the underdog and I can so relate to being rejected in this way, I just want to take a moment and like feel how that would have felt for these Galatian Christians to see these, these massive giant leaders, these men who walked with Jesus, who experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit for the first time, who released the Holy Spirit into every person now who walks in the Lord. Seeing these men refuse you, when you follow the same Jesus, you know the same God, you've had the same baptism. Can you just imagine the rejection, the confusion, the hurt? Oh, it's a serious thing. It's a truly serious matter. Mm. But there was more to it than even this. Peter withdrew and separated himself from Gentile believers when before he would eat with them. In fact, he used to eat with them often. Stott writes about the phrase he would eat with Gentiles that the imperfect tense of the verb shows that this had been his regular practice. He was in the habit of eating his meals with the Gentiles. Yet now Peter refused to eat with Gentile believers. When a Jew refused to eat with a Gentile, he did this in obedience to Jewish ritual. Peter had already learned that obedience to these rituals, such as keeping kosher, was not essential for salvation for either Jews or Gentiles. 
Peter had stopped keeping these Jewish rituals for himself, but now he acted as if he did keep them, so as to accommodate the legalism of the certain men from James. Peter no longer kept a strict observance of the law of Moses for himself, but by his actions he implied that Jewish or that Gentile believers must keep the law when he himself didn't. So Paul continues and he says, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, At the foundation, this wasn't an issue of seating arrangements at the church potluck. It wasn't about table manners and being a good host. It wasn't even about being sensitive to another brother's conscience. Paul saw the issue for what it was. It was about the truth of the gospel. When the certain men from James and Peter and Barnabas and the rest of the Jews of the church in Antioch would not eat with Gentile Christians, they declared those Gentiles unsaved unbelievers. They said loud and clear, you can only be right with God if you put yourself under the demands of the law of Moses. You must be circumcised. You must eat a kosher diet. You must observe the feasts and rituals. You must do nothing that would imply partnership with someone who is not under the law of Moses. This is the only way to receive the salvation of Jesus. And that message made Paul say, I saw saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Peter did not say so, but his example said quite plainly that the observance of the law must be added to faith in Christ if men are to be saved. From Peter's example, the Gentiles could not help but draw the conclusion that the law was necessary unto salvation. So Paul decided to take it upon himself and speak to Peter in front of everyone. What a scene that must have been. There they were at the Antioch Christian potluck. The Gentile Christians had just been asked to leave or were told to sit down in their own section away from the quote-unquote real Christians. They also weren't allowed to share the same food that the real Christians ate. Peter, the honored guest, went along with all of this. Barnabas, the man who led many of those Gentiles to Jesus, went along with this. The rest of the Jews in the church at Antioch went along with all of this, but Paul would not stand for it. Because this was a public affront to the Gentile Christians and because it was a public denial of the truth of the gospel, Paul confronted Peter in a public way. It must have been hard knowing who Peter was. Peter was the most prominent of all the disciples of Jesus. Peter was the spokesman for the apostles and probably the most prominent Christian in the whole world at the time. It must have been hard knowing who Paul was. This was before any of Paul's missionary journeys, before he was an apostle of great prominence, and at that point, Paul was far more famous for who he had been before he was a Christian than who he was as a Christian. And it must have been hard knowing who was in agreement with Peter. First, Paul had the strong domineering personalities of these certain men sent from James, Then Paul had Barnabas, who was probably his best friend. And finally, Paul had the rest of the Jews. Paul was in the minority on this issue. It was him and all the Gentile Christians against all the Jewish Christians. As hard as it was, Paul did it because he knew what was at stake. This wasn't a matter of personal conduct or just personal sin on Peter's part. It If that were the case, it's unlikely that Paul would have first used such a public approach. This was a matter of the truth of the gospel, 
proclaiming this is how a man is right before God. Paul first reminded Peter in his public outing of him that he himself did not live under strict obedience to the law of Moses. Essentially, he was saying, Peter, you eat bacon and ham and lobster. You don't keep a kosher diet. Yet now before these visitors and these certain men from James, now you act as if you keep these laws all the time. It's not hard to imagine the scene. They all had a good time until Paul spoiled the party. He probably wasn't shouting, but he did speak with firmness in his voice. And as he told everyone that Peter didn't live under the law of Moses, the certain men from James probably looked amazed. Their faces faces might have shown surprised. What? Peter, the most prominent of all the apostles, doesn't live under the law of Moses? Peter eats bacon and lobster? Peter eats with Gentiles? As for Peter, his face probably became red, his heart beat faster, and he just felt sick to his stomach. Everyone else just felt awkward and wished the whole problem would go away. We also wonder if Paul was nervous, or was he bold? Perhaps he was shaking from the adrenaline of the highly charged confrontation. We know that Paul did not necessarily have a commanding physical presence. Others said of Paul, and it was probably at least partially true, that his bodily presence was weak and his speech was contemptible. (laughs) However Paul acted, his words were memorable, because he recalled them exactly here. Hmm. Paul asked Peter, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Perhaps Peter and the others might say, we're not making them live as Jews. But of course they were, because their message was, unless you live as Jews, you aren't saved. This did, in fact, compel Gentiles to live as Jews. Paul continues on by saying, we who are Jews by nature know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Peter, Paul was saying, Peter, we all grew up as observant Jews, yet we know very well that we were not considered right before God by the works of the law that we did. We know that we, know that we even though we grew up as Jews, are considered right before God by faith in Jesus alone. This is Paul's first use of the great ancient Greek word dikaio, probably mispronouncing them which means justified or declared righteous, in his letter to the Galatians. It's a legal concept. The person who is justified is the one who gets the verdict in a court of law. Used in a religious sense, it means the getting of a favorable verdict before God on judgment day. Paul knew that even a strictly observant Jew, such as he was, could never be considered right before God by what he did under the law of Moses. Instead, he, Peter, and every single Christian must be believe in Christ Jesus. He continues on by saying that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. This was a clear emphasis. Peter, we were not justified by being under the law of Moses, but by faith in Jesus. By refusing fellowship with Gentile Christians, Peter was saying in his actions that we are in part considered right before God by the works of the law. Peter couldn't stand for this because it wasn't the truth. He, uh, Paul continues by saying, for by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Here, Paul is emphasizing the point in the strongest way possible. No flesh, meaning no Gentile, no Jew, no anyone will be considered right before God by the works of the law. 
Since this is true, it is plain to see how foolish and wrong it was for Peter to separate from these Gentile Christians because they had not put themselves under the law of Moses. Because by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified, then what difference does it make if a Gentile is circumcised according to the law? What difference does it make if a Gentile keeps a kosher table? All that matters is their faith in Christ, because that is how we are made right before God. Paul continues in his argument by saying, But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Now Paul dealt with now Paul dealt with an objection that the certain men from James would raise. It's important to remember that Paul made this statement publicly with the concerned parties right in front of him. On one side of the room there were the certain men from James who believed that God would not accept the Gentiles unless they put themselves under the law of Moses. Peter sat with these men and so did Barnabas who was Paul's best friend. In fact, all the Christians of Jewish background sat with these Christians from Jerusalem who didn't believe that the Gentiles were really saved at all. In a real-life setting like this, Paul couldn't just speak his mind without answering the objections, spoken or unspoken, of those who disagreed with him. As the men from Jerusalem saw it, the idea that we are made right before God by faith in Jesus alone wasn't real enough. After all, Christians still struggled with sin. How could they have the accepted by God issue settled if they still battled sin? And they're thinking this made Christ a minister of sin because Jesus' work of making them right with God apparently didn't make them right enough. If God justifies bad people, what is the point of being good? Can't we do as we like and live as we please? Certainly not. Paul's answer was brilliant. First, yes, we seek to be justified by Christ and not by Jesus, plus our own works. Second, yes, we ourselves also are found sinners. That is, we acknowledge that we still sin even though we stand justified by Christ. But no, this certainly does not make Jesus the author or approver of sin in our life. He is not a minister of sin. To give a short definition of a Christian... A Christian is, some, is not somebody who has no sin, but somebody against whom God no longer chalks sin because of his faith in Christ. This doctrine brings comfort to consciences in serious trouble. Paul continues by saying, For I build again those things which I destroyed, and I make myself a transgressor. Paul's answer was subtle but brilliant. If he were to build again a way to God through keeping the law of Moses, then he would make himself a transgressor. Essentially, Paul was saying there is more sin in trying to find acceptance before God by our law keeping than there is in sin than there is sin in everyday life as a Christian. These certain men from James thought they had to hang on to the law for themselves and for the Gentiles, so that there wouldn't be so much sin. What Paul shows is that by putting themselves under the law again, they were sinning worse than ever. How was it a sin to build again a way to God through the law of Moses? In many ways, but perhaps the greatest, is that it looks at Jesus hanging on the cross, taking the punishment we deserved, bearing the wrath of God for us, and says to him, Oh, that's all very nice, but it isn't enough. Your work on the cross won't be good enough before God until I'm circumcised and eat kosher. This is a great insult to the Son of God. Of course, this is the great tragedy of legalism. 
and trying to be more right with God, legalists end up being less right with God. This was exactly the situation of the Pharisees that opposed Jesus so much during his years of earthly ministry, and Paul knew this thinking very well, having been a Pharisee himself. He finishes this chapter by saying, For I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul made a hugely bold statement here saying that he had died to the law. If he was dead to the law, then it was impossible for the law to be the way that he stood accepted by God. Notice that it wasn't the law that was dead. The law reflects in its context the holy heart and character of God. There was nothing wrong with the law. It wasn't the law that died, but Paul died to the law. How did he die to the law? The law itself killed Paul. It showed him that he never could live up to the law and fulfill its holy standard. For a long time before Paul knew Jesus, he thought God would accept him because of his law-keeping. But he came to the point where he really understood the law, because understanding it in the way Jesus explained it in the Sermon on the Mount. And then Paul realized that the law made him guilty before God, not justified before God. The sense of guilt before God killed Paul and made him see that keeping the law wasn't the answer. To die to the law is to renounce it and to be freed from its dominion so that we have no confidence in it and it does not hold us captive under the yoke of slavery. When Paul died to the law, then he could live to God. As long as he tried to justify himself before God by all this law-keeping, he was dead. But when he died to the law, then he could live to God. Blessed is the person who knows how to use this truth in times of distress. He can talk. He can say, Mr. Law, go ahead and accuse me as much as you like. I know I have committed many sins and I continue to sin every day, but that does not bother me. You have got to shout louder, Mr. Law. I'm deaf, you know. Talk as much as you like. I'm dead to you. If you want to talk to me about my sins, go and talk to my flesh. Belabor that, but don't talk to my conscience. My conscience is a lady and a queen and has nothing to do with the likes of you because my conscience lives to Christ under another law, a new and better law, the law of grace. When Paul says he's been crucified with Christ, again, he is anticipating a question from those who will disagree with him. Paul, when did you die to the law? You look alive to me. Paul was happy to answer by saying, I have been crucified with Christ. He died to the law when Jesus died on the cross. He died in my place on the cross. So it was like me hanging on that cross. He died and I died to the law when he died. And since we died with Christ on the, law, on the cross, we have a different life. Our old life lives under the law. Our, our old life lived under the law is dead. And now we're alive to Jesus Christ. And Jesus is alive in us. Oh boy. Paul concluded this public confrontation with Peter with strength for these Jewish Christians from Jerusalem to require for themselves or anyone else to live under the law of Moses to be right with God was to set aside the grace of God, the very thing Paul does not do. 
To nullify grace would be to put one's trust not in salvation as God's free gift, but in one's own efforts. To do this is to reject grace altogether, and relying on one's puny effort means that one nullifies that grace. If righteousness comes through the law, then Jesus died in vain, because you can be righteous before God by law-keeping, and you don't need the work of Jesus to make you righteous. In Jesus' prayer in the garden, he asked that if there could be any other way to accomplish what stood before him at the cross, he asked to be spared the cross. But Jesus was not spared the cross, because there is no other way to accomplish what he did. This is also the great problem with seeing the grace of God as something that helps us get to heaven, as if we put forth the best we can and then grace supplies the rest. Grace doesn't help. It does it all. All of our righteousness comes from the work of Jesus for us. If my salvation was so difficult to accomplish that it necessitated the death of Christ, then all my works, all the righteousness of the law, are good for nothing. How can I buy for a penny what cost a million dollars? We don't know the immediate effect of this bold stand for truth that Paul took, but we know that over time Peter came to his senses and took Paul's words to heart. We know this from Acts chapter 15, where Peter in Jerusalem before James and Paul and Barnabas and other apostles proclaimed that Gentiles did not have to come under the law of Moses to be saved. We know that Peter was already in agreement by how Paul stated the case in Galatians chapter 2. We, even we, have believed. We might be justified by faith. We seek to be justified by by Christ. Paul is calling Peter's attention to something that Peter believed but did not act according to. One may believe that Jesus saves and we don't save ourselves, but one must also refuse to act and think that we can save ourselves. It was good for Barnabas because he came to the correct belief on the matter. It was good for Paul because he stayed true and proclaimed the gospel. This was good for Peter because he was corrected and as a result became even more convinced in the truth than before. It was good for the men who came from Jerusalem and started this whole mess because a line was drawn at the true gospel and they had to decide. It was good for the Jewish believers in Antioch because they had the truth spelled out clearly before them. It was good for the Gentile believers in Antioch because their faith and liberty in Jesus was strengthened. And it was good for us because the truth still lives today. All this good came, but only because Paul was willing to do something that was totally right, but extremely uncomfortable. Peter was willing to do that too when he admitted he was wrong. Peter and Paul were willing to sacrifice their comfort zone for what was right. Oh man, I know that this is a long episode today, but man, there's so much in just, and this is just the last half of the of the second chapter of the book of Galatians so oh there's so much to it there's so so much to it but man I could literally talk about what we can extract from this for so long there were so many things and I love how they end in the commentary that like it took Paul doing something extremely right but that was extremely uncomfortable to get things moving in the right direction across the board so that they could stop this false doctrine from coming in and taking root and it was so 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 important to do that but it had to be done and it was going to feel really yucky and I would say as I end this episode 
Is there anything in your life or in the lives of people around you that you know you're supposed to speak into, but it would be so uncomfortable? I wonder if there's a message in that for us. I wonder if there is a release of confidence or courage or boldness to say what needs to be said, regardless of how it might feel, what it might cost. But if it's right, if it's true, do we have what it takes? Would we stand in that place when everything was probably screaming in Paul's ear not to speak, but he spoke? And aren't we grateful that he did? Oh man, that there's so many lessons in this book. I hope that you took something from this today. I'm sorry that it's such a long episode. But I'm also not sorry because I really, 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 really appreciate the power in this confrontation that we can take so much away from. And you know what? It just goes to show you, even the Peters of the world, even the great apostles of the faith were human and sometimes they got in their flesh and they got peer pressured and they, they got weak in front of powerful, influential people and they made stupid decisions and they compromised. You know, let it, let it, let it encourage you in a way. Not that we should make space for our weakness, but that it, we're, it, it is what it is. You know, nobody's perfect. But in our weakness, he is strong. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Narrow Road Podcast. I will be back tomorrow with another one as we continue our study of the book of Galatians. Um, And uh, keep on going down this road of 365 days of podcasting. So I hope you will be back tomorrow to see where the story goes. Thank you so much for listening and bye-bye.